got your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're going to be continuing in Ecclesiastes. If Jesus is the answer, then what is the question? And we continue uh, in Ecclesiastes 6 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord for you, his church. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger to enjoy them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no good burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun, nor known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of his eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what advantage, what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light into our path. So I pray by it this morning, it would challenge us. That by your word, you would change our perception of our world, more importantly of you. Lord, would we fall more in love with you today? And would we leave here loving you more than when we came in? Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was growing up, one of the days that I really looked forward to uh, was my brother's birthday. And I loved my brother's birthday because on my brother's birthday, he got gifts. Uh, And some of you are saying, oh, that's so sweet. You love seeing your brother happy and excited. No, 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 no. I loved my brother's birthday because he got gifts. And whenever he got gifts growing up, my grandparents would always give me a little something as well. I always got like a little envelope with my name on it with some money in it. And it was always something I came to look forward to that whenever my brother would get something, I would get something. Whenever I would get celebrated, my brother would always get something. It was awesome. And I came really to look forward to that growing up. And then this fateful day came. It's my brother's birthday. All the presents are out on the table. My grandparents come over. We're having a grand old time. It's fun. It's celebrating. But, you know, in the back of my mind, you know what I'm waiting for. And we have a great dinner. And then everyone starts to pack up and say goodbye and walk out the door. And there was no envelope for me. 
And little Tyler's jaw hit the floor. And I was about as sour as a little kid could get. And I made a beeline into the kitchen after my grandparents walked out of the door. I'm like, mom, saying the famous childhood line, that's not fair. And my mother, you know, wise, says, well, of course it's not fair. <laughs> Life's not fair. And the idea of fair, we all know this to some extent, don't we? Right? Because as we live our lives, we see a lot of things in our world. We've experienced a lot of things in our lives that are unfair, moments and outcomes. And yet inside of us, something always seems to be wanting and crying out for things to be fair, right? When others have really good things inside, we, we want those things too. We want things to be fair. We want the same things. When, you know, we get a bad break, you know, we may not admit it, but deep down inside, we, you know, we kind of wish everybody would get the same bad break as us. It's only fair, right? And then, you know, when we're miserable, we would like everyone to be miserable too, right? That's why we have the saying, misery's company, right? We want everything to be fair inside, and especially when we start looking at our culture today. Uh, you know, fairness seems to be the championing cry of our day, right? Every policy that comes out of the government needs to be fair. Journalists need to be fair. And fairness seems to be the way that we judge our world. And we take this expectation that everything ought to be fair, and we take it all the way up to the God of the universe himself. And maybe when things like suffering and death and struggle come, we look at God and we do the same thing. We point the finger and say, you know what? I didn't deserve this. This isn't fair. This isn't right, right? Fix this. And so the sum of my life experiences, and I'm sure maybe your life experiences, lead you to this place where you want and long for things to be fair, but we know that they aren't, right? We look and we see our world and we see all of the unfair outcomes. And, you know, we are totally fine when the unfairness of the world tips in our direction, but boy, does it get us upset when it puts us at a disadvantage, doesn't it? And so we come back to the wisdom of Ecclesiastes this morning. And this is the very question that the teacher has in mind when he's writing this passage. Is life fair? And his whole argument this morning is an illustration of unfairness, right? A man who has been blessed with everything, but he doesn't have the ability to enjoy it. Rather, a stranger is going to get to enjoy it. And you probably got uncomfortable as I was reading it because this isn't just about a man who has everything and can't enjoy it, but God's name is invoked in this passage. Did you catch that? Right? God is the one who gives all of these blessings and yet doesn't allow the man to enjoy them. And there's this tension that happens once you read that part because the question begins to shift from is life fair to, well, is God fair? Because in our minds, I think we would all say, well, we want God to be fair. Of course he's fair, right? But the teacher in Ecclesiastes begins to imply, according to human understanding, if that's the way we look at it, that when you look at this situation, it's not fair. It's vanity. The author would say it's a grievous evil. But rather than despair this morning, it's this realization that the teacher wants us to come to because this is partly where wisdom begins. Because you can read this passage in one of two ways. 
You can read it with the self-righteousness of man, where you have the objective view and you get to deem what is right and wrong and how the world ought to be. And if you read this passage, then the, the answer to your question is, yes, the world is incredibly unfair and you have no power to stop it. Or we can read this passage with the fear of the Lord, like we talked about last week. And then that begins to redefine our categories a little bit, right? Is fairness, fairness with God, always what we want? Is fairness the absolute standard by which God wants us to judge our relationship with him and our entire world around us? Or could there actually be something deeper, something richer than just the simple pursuit of fairness. And now, I don't want to hear you, you hear me say this morning that fairness is bad, but I want us to probe a little bit as in our relationship with God and in our relationship with the world, is fairness all there is? Could there be a better way to live than just simply judging the world by fairness? And I believe that the wisdom of God would say yes. That wisdom begins when we realize and we don't look at the world through a lens of fairness per se, but when we look at it through a lens of God's mercy and grace. When we see not everything as a right, but as a gift. And so I want to break that down this morning. What does it look like to look at the world through these two lenses of lenses of mercy and a lens of grace? And so let's start back at the beginning with a lens of mercy. And what I love about Ecclesiastes, why it's one of my favorite books, is it takes your previously held worldview, your previously held beliefs. You probably see yourself in Ecclesiastes as you read it. And what the book does is it shines the harsh light of reality on it, right? All of your worldviews, all of your beliefs, they may sound good in your head, but then when actually compared with the reality of earth, right? They're found empty, right? They're found wanting and it leaves you wanting a better answer than the one you have. And what the teacher, the author is doing here is he's putting the worldview of moralism out on the table. And moralism, if that's a, a new concept to you, moralism is simply this idea that if you do this, you get this. And if you don't do this, you're going to be punished. And so in this passage, there's this example that this man has multitudes of wealth and children, and yet he doesn't have the ability to enjoy them. Rather, he's miserable to the point where the teacher says that a stillborn child who has not lived life is at more rest than he is. And if you're reading this, to the watching world in that culture and even today, this is a dramatic contradiction of the wisdom that they would have been given. Because in this day and age, material blessing was always believed to be tied to your own righteousness. Right? It's the same doctrines as the health and wealth gospel of today, right? Ecclesiastes, there's nothing actually new under the sun. Right? If you were a good person, God gave you good things. And if you were a bad person, God gave you bad things. So if you just listen to the wisdom of the sages and the rabbis, God will bless you. And yet here, that hasn't happened, right? This man has everything and yet has nothing. And what's implied is that he's done what he ought to do. And yet God in his sovereign will has not given him the richness of enjoying the things that he has. And what that does is it exposes a very deep underlying flaw in us because you might read this passage, you might start crying out for fairness for this man. 
well, of course he's lived a good life. He should be able to enjoy the thing he has. But what's happening is as we cry out for fairness for this man, God is in turn revealing a heart of entitlement. Right? Who is actually God in this view? Right? It's us. God is the man in this view, right? The man has done all he's required to do. And now God, you're supposed to hold up your end of the promise. God, you serve me. And the refrain of the wisdom books, you'll hear it time and time again, and definitely the refrain of Ecclesiastes over and over again, is to dissuade us of that notion and say, you are not God. You are but a creature. You are not all powerful. You are not all knowing. You are not in control. And if ever you were to convince, you, convince yourself that you are, the world will remind you that you're just striving after wind. And as we see in this passage, what the teacher's trying to say is you are not entitled to anything. You're not entitled to anything. And why is that? Well, it's because we're sinful. We're sinful people. See, oftentimes I think we like to downplay the interpretations of passages like this because we don't want to deal with the true nature of the sinfulness of our own hearts, right? We want to see ourselves as good. We want to see ourselves as righteousness and that somehow the unfairness of the world that we see is God's fault. This is God's decision. But scripture is keen to remind us time and time again that the vanity of our own world is of our making, right? Our sin led us to break God's good order of things. And our punishment, our only do right in this life is death. It, we see scripture as held up by two promises. Uh, and in Genesis chapter two, there's two covenants. Uh, there first is a covenant of works. This is the promise that God made with Adam where he promises eternal life and blessing that I will be with you on account that Adam keeps this, that he would be perfect, personal, and perpetual, pe perpetually obedient. So God will bless you with eternal life, everything you've ever wanted. And what does Adam and humankind have to do? Well, we have to be personally, perpetually, and perfectly obedient. And ever since Adam, we have failed to keep that covenant. All of us. All of us in this room, everybody in the entire world has fallen short of keeping that promise. And because we are covenant breakers, right, we don't have a right to eternal life. No human on earth has a right to eternal life. Actually, we all have a right to punishment because we didn't keep the promise. And so part of learning and growing in wisdom is recognizing, first and foremost, what is truly fair. Right? Fairness and reality with God is that we have failed as humankind. We have not kept the promise and we don't deserve our life. Right? This is a harsh reality and I know this is a harsh reality, but this is true. God is not obligated to bless you. God is not obligated to treat you well. Right? He is perfectly within his right to walk away from you, to leave you to your own destructive ends because that's what we deserve. And yet we know, because we're all here this morning, we know that God doesn't do that, right? And rather than treating you fairly as you deserve, right? He gives you first and foremost, mercy. 
He gives you mercy. And mercy is where you are not given what you do deserve, right? This punishment of death that we have earned is not given to you, right? Think of a mercy rule in sports, right? There's a lot of time left and a team is just throttling the other team like Florida would do in Georgia in an alternate universe, right? And the ref stops the game. I mean, I, would, I dream of this day. The ref stops the game and the losing team doesn't have to be subject to the embarrassment of losing anymore, right? A mercy rule, right? God's first operating principle with his world is that he is not fair to all people, but rather he is merciful to all people. In Romans, it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet God has not brought the penalty of death on our heads, right? Instead, he has given us life. And where did the judgment go? that was for us, it was put on God's innocent son. And so is it just? Absolutely. The penalty is paid for. The judgment is paid for. But is it fair? Absolutely not. Right? In the book of Lamentations, uh, we see this is the story of a prophet who's writing laments as he watches his home. Israel has been taken into exile and the capital city of Jerusalem is burning Uh, And this prophet is lamenting the loss of his home. And it's a sad, sad book to read. But in Lamentations chapter three, the tone of the book shifts and the prophet writes this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, in the midst of suffering and loss, Jeremiah the prophet realizes something profound. See, in our sin, we have no right to the blessing of God. We have no right to tell God how he ought to govern his world because we're guilty. We deserve punishment. And in the midst of ashes, the prophet celebrates because God has once again given him the gift of life, right? A new day and the promise of everlasting love still stands. Right? And that is far more than he could ever deserve. So fairness in some way, when we look at the world through fairness, fairness always means that we, we believe we have a right to our life. But wisdom of God puts us in our place. Like Life is not a right. And if it was, we've already decided to forfeit it. We make that decision every day when we choose to walk away from God. Yet rather than look at us fairly, God deals with us mercifully. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And rather than not giving us what we deserve, he deals with us gracefully. That's the second lens I want to look through. He deals with us mercifully, but he also deals with us gracefully. And so if you look back at this whole passage with the lens of the fear of the Lord, we realize that the author is showing how human expectations of God can never be the foundation of our lives. Because if we expect God to bend to our every beck and call, then we're going to be sorely disappointed. But I would hope that as you sit in your seats this morning, that you aren't here because you're simply afraid of God, right? You aren't here because you're afraid of his judgment and that you're just here to appease God and appease God's wrath. But Rather, my hope is like what the psalmist said, that you've come to taste and see that God is good. 
that you've experienced God, not some cosmic deity with a lightning bolt ready to strike you across the head, but you've experienced him as a father who desires to give good gifts to his children. And Ecclesiastes, in comparison with what we're talking about this morning, will bring up this theme again and again and again, and it encourages you to enjoy the good gifts that God has given to us. Enjoy food, enjoy drink, enjoy your spouse, enjoy the time that God has given you. And we know that this isn't a product of fairness, right? God doesn't owe you anything, but rather it's in God's nature to be gracious. See, we not only don't get what we deserve in his wrath, but we receive what we never deserved in steadfast love. Everything we get to enjoy in this life from the moment we draw breath, is a gift. Even for the ungodly, even for the non-believer, right? They still get to enjoy the good things of this world. God still gives them special acts of common grace, not salvific grace where it saves them, but they get to enjoy the goodness of this world, right? We get to enjoy family. We get to enjoy good food. We get to enjoy a sunset. We get to enjoy laughter and joy, right? And so wisdom begins first when we take responsibility for our standing before God, but also then when we look to the cross, when Christ poured out his life for us and traded his righteousness for your rags, right? Ecclesiastes' point is to argue the fact that you have no standing before God to argue fair treatment. And then the New Testament finishes the thought by saying that Christ has heard your cries and has moved in your direction anyway, right? It isn't fair, but how incredible is it to know that we have received far more than we deserve? And I think this is where our lives, when we understand this, when we build our lives on this, this is where we're on the precipice of being transformed as people because this is where we put fairness in the back of our mind because we've discovered something that's strangely more deeper and more fulfilling because when fairness is the operating principle of our lives, and this is important, whether it's with our kids or with our spouse or with our business or in our country. Fairness, by necessity, means that you always have an eye on yourself, right? You're always aware of where you stand in an exchange of fairness with somebody else, right? Because you never want somebody to surpass you because then that would become unfair towards you. And I want you to think about a time you've served before. And I guess maybe I'm wrong, but there are very few times in my life or maybe in your life where you've given and you've served to the point where you've left someone else truly better off than yourself, right? When you looked at the result of the work of your hands and you said, wow, this is unfair. And I'm now actually at the disadvantage, right? You see, when we live with our own human understanding, we'll always have one eye on ourselves, and it prevents us from living the kind of transformed life the scripture always teaches because it's a hidden place of pride. We never want to be made lower in our sin than somebody else. And yet what grace and mercy draw us to, when those are our operating principles, is to a place in a critical moment of human history in which the Son of God made himself nothing so that you could be a part of his kingdom. He died in your place. He didn't come and stand alongside you in solidarity as you suffered. He didn't come and stay at an arm's length and share 
you know, good moral principles for you to get better. No, he stood in your place. And friends, you will never have to know what God's wrath feels like because Jesus felt it for you. And now, as those on the opposite side of the cross, having experienced all this, we look at our world and go, you know, how can I just, just live for fairness, but how can I give everything I am so that others can experience the richness of what grace and mercy bring? Because grace and mercy can restore relationships in a way that fairness never could, right? There are days in a marriage where fairness probably shouldn't be the operating principle because a rich marriage is a place where one gives sacrificial, unconditional love to another, right? There are so many days where being a parent isn't fair, but God is calling you to give of your hopes and dreams, time and energy so that your children might be blessed. They might know a richer, deeper love, right? In your business, in your community outreach, right? Fairness will always, if that's your operating principle, always leave you with just an eye on yourself, right? Because we never want to be made lesser than another. But when grace and mercy become the worldview, right? We realize that fairness is not always the answer, right? We want to love like God loves us. We want the fullness of what God has to give us. And that will require making ourselves less sometimes, stepping into unfair territory, right? So Ecclesiastes 6 is a wake-up call. The world isn't fair, and without God, this all goes up in smoke. But when we love God, we have the ability to see the world in a new and more fulfilling way, right? We realize that fairness isn't always the standard by which we should judge the world, but that God calls us deeper, to look at the world through a lens of mercy and grace. I'll close with this. I read an article this week uh, in the New Yorker uh, about a daughter who's caring for her immigrant mother uh, as she is in the final days of battling ALS. And this article is extremely powerful, uh, mostly because it's written in the second person, which means that uh, she's telling her story, but she's using the terms you and your as a way to invite you into the story. And uh, and in a part of the article where she does a flashback on her mother uh, and her life as they were growing up in uh, America, she writes this, and I found it so powerful. Your grades in school were not the measure of your aptitude in language, arts, or arithmetic, but a testament to your ability to hold on to life itself, to grip the rock face, evade the avalanche, and swing yourself up to the next slab. Your mother lived below you on the eroded slope, the pebbles always slipping beneath her feet as she spelled out the situation with the desperation that struck you as humiliation. You go to school in America, and I clean toilets in America. Your mother hated nothing so much as cleaning toilets. See, it isn't fair what this mother did for this daughter giving up her life, her comfort in order to give her daughter a future. But I think we would all agree there's something deeper there. That's sacrificial love. And so as we strive to live wisely in this world, would we not just stop at comparison? Is this fair? Is this fair for me? Is this fair for you? But would we go beyond that? 
to a place of sacrificial love that is full of God's mercy and grace, a better way to view our world. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you don't deal with us fairly, that you don't deal with us as our sins deserve, but you are full of mercy and grace. Lord, and oftentimes we feel like the world is unfair towards us, but Lord, we realize that we don't deserve anything that you give us, and yet you delight to bless your children. What an incredible God you are. And so, Lord, help us to see that. Help us to live lives that evidence this sacrificial love to the world, not where we hold you hostage to our expectations, but we live in just such gratitude for what you have done for us. And Lord, would that help us taste and see a better way to look at our world, a better way to experience life and love and relationships. Lord, you are not a fair God, but you are a good God, full of mercy and grace. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.